If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is an exceptional letter written by the Apostle Paul, and as is often the case, Paul is trying desperately to straighten out some issues. Obviously, they're theological issues, they're biblical issues, but the fallout is always practical, and the the churches at Galatia, in effect, had made their lives harder than they needed to be. And so this letter at times takes a corrective tone, but it's compassionate in what Paul is trying to communicate. Entropy, scientific word. I like rainy, dark Sundays when I begin a message with something that's rooted in science. How many of you are already ready to take your morning nap? You good? Entropy is often defined as a lack of order or predictability, a gradual decline into disorder. In short, basically, entropy is a mess. According to the second law of thermodynamics, I don't need to really tell you because you already know it, entropy of an isolated system never decreases. Which means, in effect, by nature, things just get messier and messier and messier unless somebody intervenes and cleans up the mess. That law is certainly applicable to the churches at Galatia and to us because we make a mess of things. And Paul's going to try to help them clean things up. Every time I dive into the middle of a book like this in Galatians 5, I wish I had the time to give you the entire book, the whole build-up. I'm going to do it in very short time. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul is marveling. He's amazed. He's stunned at how far theologically... Practically, the believers at Galatia had shifted and how fast it had happened. He says this, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. I'm amazed that you've already shifted to another gospel when you've been called to Christ. The errancy that they had shifted to, in short, is legalism. Paul is directly going to address this. He'll say this in chapter 2 and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Don't be confused. The legalists had crept in and they were binding up new believers in Galatia with all kinds of rules and regulations and Paul is straightening it out. I like how one penned it. He said, these false teachers, the Judaizers, were attempting to fight the spiritual war with the weapons of the flesh. They erroneously believed that the only way to overcome the evils of the heathen society of that day was to arm themselves with the Old Testament law. He summed it up by saying, but of course, to seek to subdue sin by means of the flesh is like trying to put out a grease fire with water. It only makes matters worse. You cannot engage in spiritual warfare by carnal means. The law is of no effect. 
The legalists had crept into the churches of Galatia. They thought they could heal the the woes of society. They could stop sin within the church by simply pressing upon them laws and threats and guilts. But Paul has explained, no amount of legislation can ever change sin nature. It's not the law on the outside, it's the love on the inside born of the Holy Spirit that actually brings change. You can hear him pastorally. He spoke of the weight of the churches. He's desperately pleading with the believers at Galatia. He wants them to experience freedom in Christ. He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He's preaching to them in written form. He is saying to them plainly, I with evidence laid out the truth of the gospel. So vividly was Jesus conveyed to you, it is as though he was crucified in your midst. And by faith you received salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You did not attain salvation by works of the law. It's foolish to try to engage in behavior by carnal means in a journey that was begun in the spirit. Spiritual things by faith. He'll come back in chapter 4 and verse 9 and say... After that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? The the short of the letter is you're free. Why are you allowing false teachers to come back in and bind you with the law and with guilt and with threats? You have freedom. Enjoy your freedom. You are no longer in bondage. In fact, when we arrive here at chapter 5, he urges them strongly. He says in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You're free. Stand fast. It's a military term. Stand fast in the liberty. Don't go back to that bondage. Now, I'm building this on purpose. He is cleaning up a theological mess. He's pointing the believers at Galatia away from law, away from works, away from bondage to grace and to freedom. And it is here that the paradox is introduced. Notice in verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the lusts of the flesh run the whole spectrum from giving in to the passions of our flesh and attempting to please God by the works of our flesh. 
What is striking to me and the paradox that I see is he spends five chapters saying, you are free, don't return to bondage. And in one segment of verses, he pivots back and says, stand fast in your freedom. You've been called to liberty. Let me introduce to you another form of bondage. In effect, the paradox is this, we are free to serve And if we're ever going to fully comprehend this, we've got to lay this foundation and have this understanding. First, let's note, we have been called to liberty. That's a great Bible phrase. Paul is simply restating the foundation of the Christian life. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're freed from condemnation. There is, therefore, now No condemnation to them that are in Christ. We are freed from guilt. We are freed from the penalty of sin. The reality is, according to Romans 6.18, we're freed from sin, period. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, he asks this, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son? It is God. Delivered from the power of darkness. We're freed from the power of darkness. Now the power of darkness sounds like something that comes from a Marvel movie. What is the power of darkness? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. We are in bondage, subordinate to this cosmos, this world system. Which is under the influence of the prince of the power of this air. That is the devil himself. And we are also subordinate to our own fleshly lust. In Ephesians 2, we're simply told, hey, you are under the power of darkness. You are subordinate to this world. You're subordinate to the devil. You're subordinate to your flesh. And here now, we learn we're freed from all of that in Jesus. In John 8, 36, Jesus says, in Christ, you are free indeed. Really, Truly, you are free. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, subordinate to this world system, to the devil, and to your own flesh. You need a redeemer. You need a mediator. You need a liberator. And in Christ, we have that. He is our Savior. If you are in Christ, you are free. You are called to liberty. Which means you're free from the law, you're free from its demands, you're free from its threats, you're free from its guilt. Christ bore all the law, he fulfilled it, carried it to the cross, and ended its tyranny there. Grace and liberty go together. That's what Paul's clarifying. And we have to lay this theological cornerstone to build to the practical life change. And what he's telling us here is important. You've been called to liberty. And when he says that, he gives us a twofold command. And then he backs the twofold command by giving us two incentives one positive and one negative. This segment of verses outlines itself. I just want you to notice this with me. You've been called to liberty. So, on the negative side, use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. On the positive side, but rather it serve one another by love. Now, to support that twofold mandate, he comes back and he gives some incentives. Positively, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
on the negative side. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. We just take these four things and understand what being free to serve actually looks like. You have freedom, you have liberty to be a slave. That is paradoxical. We have been called to liberty, and the first thing that he does is he cautions us now against license. License leads to licentiousness. That's a big Bible word. Paul knows that we are prone to extremes. If I use this term with you, cheat day, how many of you understand what a cheat day is? Okay, a few people. You're dieting, you're seeking to limit your caloric intake, you are trying to better yourself, and then you schedule in a cheat day, which means anything goes. You can eat whatever you want because, after all, parenthetically, you have said, this is my cheat day, and you can go so far on your cheat day as to eliminate all of the wins you've had in your diet, and you say, that's the whole reason I do the whole thing, man then what I would say to you, this is a Bible concept, it kind of works, moderation. Try it out. You can kind of do whatever you want the whole way through if you just do it in moderation. But that's Bible stuff. We won't get into that now. This is Sunday morning. We don't want to mess with that. Paul is basically stepping in and he's saying, spiritually speaking, believers at Galatia, I know what you are prone to. I have spent five chapters telling you, you are called to freedom. These Judaizers have come in, these false teachers have come in, and they've tried to press back upon you and say, well, if you're really saved, and I mean you're really a Christian, then you will have the right of circumcision carried out. And if you're really a Christian, and I mean really one of us, and really saved, you'll start observing all the feast days, and you'll take the calendar, and you'll mark out all the ceremonies and all the rites, and you'll do everything that the law mandated. And Paul says, forget all of that mess. You're free in Christ. However, you are very prone to cheat days, believers at Galatia. And I am going to now caution you against license. That's what the phrase, use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh means. Now let me elaborate on that. See, well, I knew you were going to do that. One wrote this. Christian freedom cannot be disinterested in the honor of God, the glory of God, or the word of God. Christian freedom cannot be free to sin, to be free to be passive about righteousness, godliness, or purity. Rather, Christian freedom must be expressed within the reality that I have been turned into a lover of God and my freedom is defined as finding all the ways that I can express that love toward God. He is protecting us from the ditch on both sides of the road. Don't use the freedom that you have from the law as an excuse to merely live by the desires of your flesh. Not as an occasion to the flesh. That word is very interesting. Occasion in this setting is a military term for base. What he is saying is, don't let your flesh be the base of operations for all of your actions. Don't let your carnal nature be the base of operations for all of your practical living. That's not what he's after. 
Peter wrote something similar in 1 Peter 2.16. He said, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Peter says the same thing. You're free to be a servant of God. Don't take your freedom and use it as a cloak of maliciousness. Cloak is simply something that was used to hide or cover. It can carry the idea of wearing a mask. This is genuine, true hypocrisy. Don't use the freedom that you have in Christ, grace, to hide behind a mask all kinds of sinful behavior. Can't live like that. You can't hide sin in that way. Perhaps there's no other doctrine within Scripture that is as easy to pervert, maybe to twist, misinterpret, or misunderstand than this one. Being free in Christ does not mean anything goes. The church at Corinth, notoriously troubled church. I always find it surprising that people will still out there name church is Corinth Baptist Church, and I think, well, why? It just doesn't make sense. Like, Foolish Galatians Baptist Church. I mean, we're full of dummies, but we don't need to put it on the sign out front. The church at Corinth was troubled. They were given to immoral behavior. It was so bad in the church that they were actually doing things in the church that the lost people outside the church were afraid to even talk about. They had become so incredibly tolerant that literally anything went. They had adopted a slogan. It was in the common vernacular of the believers at Corinth. They would say, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. I'm not bound by the all things are lawful for me. Paul took that phrase that had become very common and he pivots He gives them balance again. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. This is the balance that we must strike and understand. As one commented, our freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we'd like to do. It means we are free to do whatever we ought to do. You say, well, if I ought to do something, that doesn't sound like freedom because I don't want to have any oughts in my life. Well, you ought To do the things that God wants you to do. And ultimately, it's paradoxical. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, let's take a little walk through seminary for just a second. Because, again, we haven't gone deep enough or Greek enough or nerdy enough. How many of you are aware of the term antinomianism? Hmm. No one. What antinomianism is, I can just make up stuff now. Nobody knows. Antinomianism, you should understand this. It's the belief that sin does not matter because the grace of God is available. This antinomianism has been toxic to the church since the first century and it is certainly rampant now. And what I want you to grasp about an antinomianist is They don't come into a church with 
horns on their head and a pitchfork in their hand with a red cape on scowling at you. They look just like me. And they look just like you. In fact, these are people who join churches and serve. Join churches and teach. Join churches and sing. Join churches and attend. And yet their lives are no different than the lost that are in the world. Jude, dealing with the first century church, said it this way in verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. You don't even know they're there. They've crept in unawares. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Get this. Ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Get this, their entire motivation for ministry is to take what God gifted in grace and pervert it and twist it into actually allowing and being tolerant of sinful lifestyles. It's rampant in the church. It was so much a common question in the church at Rome that the believers were actually asking, so if the grace of God is there, should we just continue to sin so that the grace of God can be used again? Here's what they were asking in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul answers strongly in verse 2. He says, God forbid if I could amplify that, paraphrase it, may that never be, perish the thought, certainly not, by no means, what a ghastly thought, don't you even think about it. Paul is incredibly strong in this moment. God forbid that we keep sinning. Do you see the ditches the Apostle Paul is trying to keep the believers from on both sides? You are called to liberty. They can't threaten you, they can't guilt you, they can't law you anymore. However, don't use that liberty to make your flesh the base of operations for everything that you do. You're called to liberty. You are cautioned against license, and he culminates in this reality. You're commanded to serve. Here's what it really looks like to pursue Jesus Christ by love, serve one another. In generic terms, that's easy. If I were to try to define what my life is, I would maybe say something like, I have been called to full-time service. Full-time service of the Lord, which means full-time ministry to God's people. Now again, in generic, in vague terms, that's easy to apply. I serve God's people. But now when I put your face on it, it makes it hard. By love, serve one another. Absolutely. Amen. But I mean the one that you kind of don't like. The one who's a little prettier than you are. The one who's a little more condescending. The one who's nasty, the one who outright doesn't like you, even the one who spoke badly about your little baby child, by love serve them. Put a face on it. That makes it challenging. Paul is helping us. He's saying, I know this is paradoxical. You've been called to liberty. Don't let that be freedom to run rampant with your flesh. You've been called to freedom in, in effect so that you can be a slave to everybody else. That's what Jesus did in Philippians 2. 
agape love, right? Agape love's the highest, it's the noblest, it's the most sacrificial and humble love. Here's what Jesus did. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Yeah, Jesus loved like this, but it's not only for Jesus. You have this mind too, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Through this humble, selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love, serve one another. The very word serve bristles when we hear it. It's the idea of slavery. And as shocking as that was, everyone who read Paul's letter here immediately knew what he meant. When he said, you have liberty to be a slave. And again, when these paradoxes are delivered, we think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So motivated by humble love, in the liberty that I have in Christ, I turn and selflessly serve everyone, yes. And it's the summation of the whole law. In effect, love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, writing to the believers in Rome, here's what he says. He summarizes it beautifully in Romans 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He starts in Romans 13 and he says this, you have a debt you will never repay. You owe something that you will never be out from under. There will never be a moment in your life where you have ever forgiven enough. There will never be an instance where you have extended enough grace. There will never be a moment where you've been kind enough or you have loved enough. You will never see the day where you say, I have reached my kindness quota. I've actually given out all the kindness and love I can ever give out. Wrong Owe no man anything except to love your neighbor. And then he does something so intensely practical. He says all of the law is fulfilled in this way. Think about it. I don't need a reminder on my phone to pop up that says, Chris, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, do not kill your neighbor. I don't need to put a post-it note on my door that says, hey, no adultery today. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Whatever you do today, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. I should not need a reminder to not kill you. On occasion, we all need that reminder, don't we? But Paul is saying this. If you love, you will fulfill all the law. Because if you truly love your neighbor, you will not work ill towards your neighbor. You won't kill. You won't commit adultery. You won't bear false witness. You won't envy. You won't steal. You'll fulfill all the law. It gets really practical. All I have to do is love my neighbor as myself, and the whole law is fulfilled. Now let's get down into the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road, as one wrote. Love your neighbor as yourself 
is not a command to love yourself. It's a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and make it the measuring rod of your love for others. Here he goes. Want to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you get hungry. It means want to find your neighbor a job as much as you are glad you have a job. Want to help your fellow student get A's as much as you want to get A's. Want to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you are glad you're not stalled on the freeway. Want to give the bad softball player a chance to play as much as you want to play the whole game. And all I want is one at bat. I'm I'm kidding, that was a joke. I'm really great at softball. That was also a joke. You guys aren't in the mood to laugh. I get it. You want to be done. You're starting to get hungry. I'll move on. Here's what he says. Want to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you're glad you know Christ yourself. Use all the creativity and energy and perseverance to do good things for others that you use in doing good things for yourself. Care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. In summation, can you imagine what the church would be like if we were all like that? Looking at the person to the right and to the left and feeling the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. Not only would the law be fulfilled, the gospel message would be so potent. This place would shine and people's lives would be changed. The other side of that coin is be careful. Don't bite and devour one another. That's what he says. That's the negative side. You've been called to liberty, so here's two commands. Don't use that liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but rather by love, serve each other. Here's your incentive. If you will love your neighbor as yourself, you're fulfilling the whole law. And the negative incentive is, but rather, if you bite and devour each other, it's over. You'll destroy it. A church of people who don't serve each other in love will destroy itself. What will destroy a church, one asked and answered, is one where everybody acts like an animal and people eat each other alive. Slander and gossip and hate and backbiting unhindered. It's a killer because ultimately in that moment we're nothing like Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered the draw of the gospel is largely seen in how we live it out practically. I'll conclude, one said, if people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? People have always left the church because they want to gratify the flesh. But what happens when people leave because they believe the church exists to gratify the flesh? That's a far different problem. What if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. That's a gospel crisis. 
If we've read the Bible and we don't live it out, the church will look at us and perceive that we have rejected the Bible. If we don't love our neighbor enough to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, why would they ever perceive the gospel makes practical changes? We strip away the potency of the gospel by living weak lives unless we grasp the liberty that we have been given is to, in freedom, be a slave to each other. That's the paradox of Christianity. Freed from the bondage of sin and death, only to become the slave of Jesus Christ and the servant of others. Who's in charge? Your own will, your own career, your own plan, your own desires, your own body, your own intellect, or are you a slave under the mastery of Jesus Christ serving others? As a believer, you and I are free to serve. It's paradoxical, but it's fact. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.